Hoarding Pocket. Now on BBC Radio 4, we are off to the golf club again and trouble ahead of a monthly medal as the professional shop runs out of hats. Donald Sindon, Miriam Margolis and Bez from the Happy Mondays star in Three Off the Tee. Very proud. I mean, uh, it was a roller coaster today. Never felt so many emotions. Uh, looked good early. Looked like it could go to the U.S. Like it could be a, a, a bad day for us at one point. But uh, our guys just hung in there, uh, like I knew they would, and uh, just glad we got over the line. Just sum up your feelings right now, Luke. Uh, just a bit emotional right now, but. Uh, just so happy, so happy for these 12 guys that, uh, that they can remember this week forever. Well done. Many, many congratulations. Well, hello from Rome. Hello from Marco Simone Golf Club. Hello from me, Andrew Cotter. Hello from he, guest Ian Carter. Hello, Ian. Hello, 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 hello. What a day. What a day. What a day. You're actually sitting very close to me, but you are in a different booth. We're in the media center and by the marvels of technology. Hello once again. To Eddie Pepperell, the prodigal son returns to the chipping forecast. Hello, Eddie. Hello, Andrew. Prodigal son with a glass of celebratory red wine. Oh, really? Oh. Okay, mm. well, um, stay safe. Be sensible. There's not a lot of um, safeness or sensibility up at the clubhouse. Safeness isn't the word. Safety. Um, I've just come down from there. They were about to start spraying the champagne, and uh, I left them to it. All the caddies were getting stuck in, and the players, they came out of the press conference, the European players, Rory McIlroy comes into the clubhouse area. Honest to goodness me, heavens to Betsy, he was excited. He was just hollering, Europe, Europe, Europe. He's not a... I, th- I think we saw how much it meant to him. I'm sure we'll be getting into into the antics of, of last night. Uh, we're recording Sunday night. The, the celebrations, as you say, Andrew, is still going on. We saw how much it meant to him, didn't we, after the, the Cantlay shenanigans. We'll get into all that. Um, as the pod gets on and gets going, but I mean, what a day, what a day. And the, the celebration, I've been in the middle of it all. It's, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. I've been in the middle of it all down in the TV compound, away off by the fourth commentating <laughs> on it. So by, by the process of television, I was in the middle of it all. We were looking down, actually all the cameras went or the mixer went technically uh, towards the end. So there was one camera and it was then left as the high overhead camera on the 18th green. So actually it was a lovely shot looking down on Dane Lowry and Jordan Spieth. And I, I know that wasn't the definitive point or half point or the definitive moment of the of the match, but the scenes, all oh, the scenes around there and just that little patch of green left because all the spectators coming. That's what happens at the Ryder Cup, isn't it, Ian? I presume you were out there in the crush, being crushed. Uh, yeah, I was. Uh, and and what happened at, at, at that point because we had had similar problems. And you know, joking aside, I don't know what, what happened, but there was some kind of, of outage. And I was actually standing on that 18th green waiting to talk to Luke Donald and eventually got to, to speak to him and all been plugged back in at that point. So I was able to, to do it. But in the time that went on there, because basically what had happened was Tommy Fleetwood had driven the 16th and won the 16th to go up two up with two to play. So the job was done. The half was was guaranteed, even though it wasn't official. And from that moment, just more and more people came to the the 18th. And of course, the Lowry and Spieth match came down there. And we were standing on there. Then we got cleared off the green, went to the back of the green. I spoke to Luke Donald there. I've never seen him so 
emotional. His his eyes were just full of tears. He was struggling to get the words out. You know, you could see how much it meant to him, how much he had poured into it as the European captain. Having taken over, and let's not forget, in such uh, unique circumstances, Henrik Stenson walking away from the job effectively to go to live. It was only August last year that he took over the captaincy, poured heart and soul into it, and it all came flooding out at that time. But at the same time, the green was just getting surrounded by more and more people. The ropes weren't doing their job. It was it was an absolutely epic scene. And scenes I'll never forget of the golfers, uh, uh, Lowry and Spieth, on a green that was, that people were on it. I mean, at one yeah. point, there was a producer from the Golf Channel who, and I don't blame her at all. She was with Steve Sands and she walked across and she had to be, she had to be shoved to make sure she didn't walk straight over the line of uh, Spieth, wasn't it, putting from from way over on the right-hand side. It was absolutely utter, unbridled chaos out there. Yeah, it, it was it was chaos. And listen, I, you know, we're not going to be killjoys or curmudgeons about this. I mean, I probably am. But um, I, I love the atmosphere and the excitement. The Ryder Cup is very different to any other event in golf. But, I, you know, it does get chaotic. And, and this year, towards the end, it was, I mean, obviously, there were lots of people swimming in the lake as well. There's one yeah. person who seemed to be floating out there. snakes in there as well. The snakes in there. So I say good luck to the snakes and just feast away. But, um, yeah, it's on, the, it's on the edge. I was actually talking to a couple of um, um, high-up people in the tour, and they, they enjoyed the atmosphere, but they're also saying, listen, I wonder if we might have to do something about this in the future because there's an edge and perhaps it's gone just over that edge in terms of, but I said to him, well, that's happening in all sports at the moment in terms of behavior. So listen, I'm not pouring cold water on this immediately after the Ryder cup. People love it, but uh, you know, the, the amount of drink that has been drunk out there in the hot Roman sun, obviously it plays a huge part as it does at all sporting events. But I, I, I wanted to be out there as, you know, commentating, uh, you know, with, with the radio, but I actually didn't envy you just that, that end there because it does, it does become a very difficult job to do, and that's all part of the atmosphere, and you'll have been commentating on it and describing it, but my goodness, it gets mad. Yeah, yeah, it was, and we can get into some of the difficulties and some of the stories from that. I'm really fascinated to know what Eddie makes uh, makes of it all as a as a European tour professional. I mean, this means so much to the tour, so, many, so much to you and your, your colleagues, uh, Eddie, and, and of course, you watched it from afar like so many other people. I did. I barely missed a shot. I was out yesterday morning playing golf, but we were keeping abreast of it all. And then, uh, but you know, I've got very much square eyes. I can't recall watching as much TV as uh, as this for a long, long time. And it was um, just brilliant. And to see the emotion coming out of Luke at the end and all of the players, and even I had tears in my eyes, which is very, very unusual for me. Um, it just felt like such a an emotionally charged few days, an inspirational few days. Clearly, the guys have invested just an inordinate amount of energy um in in these few days but also the preceding two weeks was the the real vibe i was getting as soon as they met up a few weeks ago including wentworth you know the whole journeys began and and um you know i know i know luke kept using the term unity but my god didn't he create it and, and what an unbelievable job he did as captain and the vice captains it just um was a brilliant three days of television and consumption and, and as a as a golfer but also as a fan and as somebody that's got a relatively good obviously inside knowledge of, of the golf course and some of the players that are there it felt i felt very privileged but um brilliant brilliant i loved every moment of it so let's go back into then and today this afternoon i mean i actually you know i i, I wanted it to be even closer and 
you know, wanting as a, as a European Europe to win, but you just, we just want it to be, you know, close and as dramatic as possible. So I wanted USA to come back into it on the final day, and I kind of wanted it to go right down to Bob McIntyre in the final match. And for a while, it wasn't getting far away from that. You could see the projected score was coming down to uh, 15 and a half, 12 and a half at one point. It was sticking there. And you were actually starting to look down there and think, okay, this is, this is not beyond the USA. But I think what was crucial was, I mean, well, first of all, the first day, because you, you cannot come back really from that deficit. And that's when the USA were looking ragged and rusty, and maybe there was illness as well. But that top match in the singles today, if Scotty Scheffler had hung on to win that one instead of being pegged back to, to half the match on the final green by John Ram, you know, that kind of sets, sets the tone. And it just, you know, it's half a point but it can be such a, an important half point for, for Europe when USA were scrabbling for absolutely everything they could get. Luke Donald made exactly that point about John Rahm. That half was crucial. And I, I got to speak to John Rahm after, after that round because I followed it all 18 holes. And honestly, it was, it was a privilege. It was one of the, the, the highlights of my broadcasting career to cover that match. Um, it was like I said in commentary, it was like watching a Nadal-Federer tennis match when they were both at the height of their powers. Both players, you know, the top three in the world, they were slugging it out, trading birdies. It was going one way, then the other. Scheffler overcame, you know, some real... I mean, it, it looked like he'd never hold a putt again in his life after the first couple of attempts to hold from inside six feet early on. And then he made some really brave ones. And then Ram winning the 18th in the way that he did, and he said afterwards to Thomas Bjorn, Thomas Bjorn gave him a massive hug just before I interviewed him and said, you beauty. And uh, Ram said to him, oh, I thought I'd got it. I thought I'd got it. That putt all the way across the, the 18th that shaved the hole. And then, of course, the chip went across the, the green and uh, Scheffler had to then chip from the banks of the of the water to try and hole out for a birdie to win the, the match and couldn't do it. So it finished all square, which was really fitting. But in the context, it was just vital. Hovland had already won, but that half then took it to 12-6. And then you had Rory McIlroy, for whom this was a tour de force, I thought, this Ryder Cup and Tyrrell Hatton getting Europe to 14 points. But as you say, Andrew, at that point, you're going, well, where's where's the half coming from? And it, there were no guarantees on that board at all, not a single one. And that was when, I mean, I don't know about you, Eddie, just how nervous were you? Because if, if Europe had, had not managed to get that half point, having had such a commanding position, that would have been very, very hard to take. It was very tense on television. And, and um I think Bob missed a very short putt for par on 14 to go back to all square. And Tommy missed a short putt on 15 to go two up after hitting a brilliant approach. And listen, I'm not, not really good. I don't like being critical of golfers, but I will say this year watching Tommy, to me, he's missed so many important putts at important times in rounds and, and important times in tournaments where it stopped him from winning. And when he missed the one on 15, I thought, oh, for Christ's sake. So I, you know, the, the irony is that he's won the tournament with a driver and not a putter. And you know, that's where Tommy's at at the moment with his game. But what an unbelievable tee shot on 16. I mean, we talk about Max Homer. You know, I'm watching Max Homer versus Fitzy after Fitzy hitting driver in the water. You think if you're Max, just pull three wood out, which he didn't do. Hits driver, hits it in the water and almost cost him the match. You know, and I said to the Jen watching it, Tommy should just hit three wood, play for a three front edge or you know, maybe make a three but he took it on with the driver and he's won us the Ryder Cup so incredible moment for Tommy and um, 
but very, very tense, you know, early doors in the, in the afternoon. Yeah. I thought this was looking great. I was even scheduling in a practice session, but um, you know, that didn't last very long. So what, what about uh, the USA? Because again, there's this inquest going on. I don't know how the inquest is. I wasn't in the American press conference afterwards, but you know, after two days, people are saying, and this happens to captains when the team doesn't perform that it's a, it's an awful captaincy and Zach Johnson has been getting pelters and perhaps rightly so for some things, but you look at the USA, foursomes never seem to quite deliver and then singles, they become, what's this group of individuals who are brilliant golfers? But also perhaps there was the element of they hadn't played really coming into this Ryder Cup. And so they're shaking off the rust over the first couple of days. There was illness as well. I'm not, you know, there will be a lot of chat about what happened to the USA because on this final day, really, they looked perhaps the, they were finishing the stronger. Paul Waring was saying in our commentary that he he agreed with me that they looked rusty on the first day. You know, Europe sweeping that opening foursomes. They weren't on it. They looked a, 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 looked a pretty shambolic bunch, to be honest. And and I'm convinced that, I mean, the, the point has been made. They had a very similar length off before they won at Whistling Straits, but nine of them hadn't played since the end of August. And I think they played themselves into form. And by the by, the time they got to to Sunday, they they were match sharp. I mean, Eddie, you know way better than me what it takes to be in positions to be able to because it is a game of such pre- precision and fine margins that they just they just thought it was only half an inch off, but that's enough, you know. And 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 eventually they were they were sharp and they were playing you know to their capability. But it took them a day and a bit to get there. It did. I I think the the four weeks, five weeks off is inexplicable. I, I can't understand it. You know, as a as a player, I think you can have two weeks off, but you need to have some relatively, you need to have some competitive freshness built up in the system. And I think within two to three weeks, four or five weeks is far too long. The other thing that struck me was just how often the US team got off to such bad starts. You know, I know Europe talked about getting up early, but often their job was done for them. The starts that the US team were making were terrible on the first three holes. And I tweeted this, you know, when I think of that golf course, holes one and three, in my opinion, you want to play to the fat part of the fairways, get the ball on the green, give yourself birdie opportunities and get yourself in the match early. And if you do that, you're you're going to be in the match. You might not win the hole, but you're going to be there. You're not going to be two down after three. And I just felt like their strategy was poor. They didn't know the golf course. They were lazy, frankly, nine of them showing up to the pre, you know, event flight over. I, I just I think that's laziness on their on their part and or poor preparation, call it what you want. But, but I just um I think they got it all wrong and it's inexcusable. But ultimately they're obviously clearly don't prioritize the Ryder Cups in their own minds the way they do other big tournaments, and that's a shame. But that said, they'll talk about the Ryder Cup and what it means to them. I think it means more to the USA, the American players, the Ryder Cup when they're playing in the USA because they are the front and center in front of their, in front of their own fans. And, but when they go to Europe and they have a European crowd that just triggers the 10% that they don't care about the Ryder cup. And it just exaggerates it. You look at Brooks Kepka as the ultimate example. I don't think Brooks Kepka cares about the, about the Ryder cup really. And I'm not saying that for a hot spicy take hot takes. I, I don't think he does. I think he'd rather win it than lose it. But when you're looking for that extra 5% that is going to get you over the line, that 5% is not there for the American players, especially in, especially in Europe. Now in Beth Page in two years time, that'll be a very different thing. But on that, on that first day in particular, and the foursomes, foursomes shows up any, any slight division or, 
uh, I'd say just that slight lack of percentage of wanting to really play for the team or for the event. Foursomes is going to find out. Individuals in the singles, it's a different thing. But I, yeah, you see a lot of talented individuals on the American team. I couldn't agree more. And, and on Brooks, I was thinking back, and he to me is the anomaly in this team. I know people talk about Patrick Cantley, but he showed up this week. Brooks to me is the outlier. He's the massive individual in this. And I think that's why he's won so many majors. But there was one point this week where he was asked, and you'll remember this in the press conference at the beginning of the week, where he said, who'd have the ball? You know, how many people do you think would take the ball and win the Ryder Cup? And he took a moment to reflect and he said, very few. To me, that is somebody that cannot understand that it's sometimes worth lying to say the right thing when you're part of a team because his teammates, and there would have been some people on that team, would have known that actually he's referring to them. And he didn't specify the Europeans. He just said very few. And I think that's somebody who does not understand the nature of being part of a team. And I cannot believe for one moment if that question was posed to Rory or John, and I would put them in the same league in terms of their ego, in terms of their animal spirits, they would have understood the consequences of their answer to that question. And I think Brooks does not understand it. And and honestly, I think for that reason, he's a disappointment when it comes to the Ryder Cups. He'll go on to win singles. He's a brilliant player. I love the guy. But that to me epitomized everything that's wrong with the US team. And I do not think that is just not the kind of answer you'd get in a, in a fully cohesive team environment. And the talk about, obviously, the talk emerged about the rift in the USA team for whatever reason. And you have Patrick McCantley playing with that. I had some people talking about, well, well reports that it is because he doesn't want to wear the hat in, in protest at not being paid for the week and that he and Xander Schofley were a little bit separate from the rest of the team. Now, that has been denied. And you saw after Patrick Cantley's performance on the uh, yesterday evening and Saturday night, how impressive that was. And I thought Patrick Cantley, his play over the weekend was utterly outstanding. And then the players were clamoring yeah. around him and they're all waving their hats. And so there was that element of support for him. But is there a division in the, in the US team in that they are a collection of, of individuals? Or there are some outliers, as, as Eddie's saying, whether it's Bruce Koepka, whether it's Patrick Cantley, wanting something else from the Ryder Cup, something else apart from the pure competition. What can I get from this Ryder Cup? for me uh, as, a, as an individual golfer. And I think there probably has to be an element of disharmony within a, a team because of that. I don't think there was disharmony there. I think that Eddie has just made the most fantastic point, probably the most insightful point I've heard in the entire week. That analysis of, of Brooks Kepka, and, and you're right, you know, to have said what he said, showed lack of faith in his teammates. And whether that he has that lack of faith or not, he certainly shouldn't be saying it in public. You know, that's a that's a brilliant point. I come from the, the news conference that the Americans have given post-round. To me, I agree with Eddie. They didn't want it this week as much as Europe did. And that's, you know, and there are a number of reasons that go into that. And one of them is the the, the humping that, that Europe got two years ago and they wanted that redemption they not necessarily revenge but they wanted redemption from that and that was vital to them but so God, i've lost the train of my of, of my thought there but it's is that because you said humping yeah it probably is <laughs> the humping of whistling straights that's what it went down as the medical medina and the humping of whistling straights but the point I wanted wanted to make was the fact that they were sitting there and actually they were laughing, they were joking, they were saying they were still united, they were all good mates and all of that. And I don't doubt that there is a lot of cohesive spirit there. There are some very, very good friends and partnerships there. And they've come over here. And to me, they sat there as a team relieved that they hadn't been utterly humiliated. 
they knew they were going to lose, but they put up a good fight on the final day. So they had that to cling on to. Zach Johnson said, yeah, I've made mistakes. I accept that I made mistakes. When asked what the makes were, he couldn't identify what they were, but he said, this is on me. And I think he wasn't particularly inspirational. I don't think he was at all inspirational, certainly in the way that he spoke publicly here. But he did have his players' backs. He did say, I've got 12 great players. They can all deliver a point. We're not giving up yet, heading into the singles. He said all the things that you have to say as a captain. He was so... I mean, we you can debate the... The the how effective a captain is, how important a captain is. I'm telling you this, Luke Donald absolutely captained um, Zach Johnson into a, another universe. It, Donald was just on a higher level from the moment he, he, with gusto, spoke in Italian at the opening ceremony all the way to the very end in his tear-filled interviews. It showed how much it meant to him. And I thought he was just a brilliant captain, Luke Donald. Yeah, from the moment when he said Ludwig Ober at the opening ceremony, I thought we're on to a winner here. I would say also the difference between now and Whistling Straits. Oh, and and and, and that's the biggest thing. That's isn't the biggest it? thing is we've American TV saying Ober. So we, anyway, we've won, we've won on that one. Yeah, it's a victory for Europe over over America right there. We led it. Chipping forecast. We seem to just created a delay in the last few minutes. Ian's Ian's Wi-Fi seems to have just shut down for two seconds and is now on a delay. And I would say the difference between now and Whistling Straits as well, is that the, the European players are, are better than they were in Whistling Straits. So just quickly going down the world rankings here. Whistling Straits, U.S. had the world's number two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, and 10 in the team. That's extraordinary. The lowest ranked player at Whistling Straits was Scottish Scheffler, who was obviously on the rise. Europe at Whistling Straits had John Ram as world number one, then no other player in the top 10. McElroy was 15 at the time, not 15 years, 15 in the, in the world. He's older than 15. Garcia, 43. Polter, 50. Bernd Wiesberger, 63. This year, Europe in the rankings, they're the number two, the number three, the number four, the number eight, 11, 13. And I remember when USA had that blowout win. I mean, 99 at Whistling Straits. And a lot of Americans in particular were saying, this is the start of a run. America are going to dominate for years to come. But you never know who's going to come through. Nikolai Hoygaard was okay this week. Ludwig, Ludwig. Oh, but I almost forgot myself there, is, is going to be a, a force for a good few years to come. Although I think he looked a little bit tired this week as well. We saw a bit of that at Wentworth. But, you know, new players do come through. So, you know, I trust that Europe are going to be more than competitive in, in, in Ryder Cups to come. The one thing I was going to say is that I do think that the world rankings are not an accurate reflection anymore. And this also opens up the debate that, you know, America lost more players than Europe did as a result of live the way that the whole golfing landscape has, has changed. If Bryson DeChambeau, Patrick Reed, uh, Dustin Johnson had all been playing PGA tour schedules, they'd probably have been in that team and who knows what difference that might've made. I think that's a, a, a fair point. Hi, I'm Colin Montgomery and you're listening to The Chipping Forecast with my good friend, Eric Pepperell. There's an edit point coming here, and I don't know how seamless we've rejoined, but we've had a, a technical guy come up uh, to sort out Ian and plug him, hardwire him. Stay, saved the day. Yeah, he has saved the day. So I think we're on a, a shorter delay now. So we're on Italian Premier InStyle Wi-Fi now. It's, uh, it's better. Advertised by Leonardo Henry. Um, anyway, so I think we're okay. We were, we were talking about Brooks Kepka. We were talking about individuals in, uh, in the US team. We were talking about them not perhaps having the fight for it uh, because, yeah, I don't know, it's a little bit like, do you know who I think set the tone for this, though, is 
Tiger Woods because everyone idolized Tiger Woods, but Tiger Woods didn't really care about the Tiger uh, the Tiger Cup, the Ryder Cup. No, it did, but but you know, okay. So Rory McIlroy idolized him, and and he has bought into the Ryder Cup, but. There are certain elements within the USA that they see the Ryder Cup perhaps as comparable to the President's Cup, and they don't have, it doesn't mean as much to them as it does to the Europeans. I'm fairly sure of that. I would agree with that, that it doesn't mean as much to the Americans as it does to the Europeans. And I think that does make a difference. That being said, the home advantage that we're seeing occur now in Ryder Cups is just huge. You know, I saw the guys from No Laying Up tweet that this was actually the closest Ryder Cup in the last decade, which is with five points. So, you know, that maybe raises other questions as to whether we need to get independent bodies in to set it all up. To, but, uh, you know, it's um, home advantage is clearly a big thing. I think the next one's going to be very interesting. Uh, you know, it, when we talk about Ludwig and we talk about Nikolai Hoygaard, those two players are players to me that looked a little tight this week, but are players that could, are definitely potentially going to go on, especially in the case of Ludwig, to really great things. So I, I think there's reason to be optimistic for the European team. But equally, Beth Page Black, away. Ryder Cup, you know, I just don't, I think that's going to be so difficult. The people I was talking to who are talking about, you know, spectator behavior perhaps going a little bit too far here and in general in sport, they were saying Beth Page is going to be, you know, we talked on our most recent body in about, um, about Sir Michael Banalak, who, who died last week. I remember him talking about the bear pit of Brookline into the bear pit. Mm-hmm. And Beth Page Black is going to be, oh. it, it's, it, it's going to be something something else. But again, that's not to say that the fans over here in Europe are virtuous and polite. They're not at all like that. But I think that with every sort of Ryder Cup, it then escalates because you set the pattern for behavior and you set the tone and you set what seems to be okay and acceptable. So it, it is going to be a, a, an incredible atmosphere at Beth Page. But also that point that Eddie makes about how wide the margins are now and how the home side always seems to win by a distance. Perhaps we were just spoiled by great fortune for having those close matches at uh, Kiowa, at Brookline, at Medina. You know, the, the chances are really when you're playing for 28 points that it's very unlikely to come down to one final putt to win it in one final match. It's far more likely to be a three, a four, a five-point five win. I think an away win in a, in a Ryder Cup is probably the hardest thing in in golf right now um, because of the, the course setup is, is one thing, but I just think it's the fans, it's the crowd, it's the intimidating environment in which they have to play. And I mean, this was an incredible week. This golf course was turned into a stadium that had a, a football style atmosphere to it from the start to the finish, the crowds. I was on the first tee every morning, first thing probably 40 minutes before a ball was struck every day this week and the crowds were just being revved up they'd got a professional there was a warm-up entertainer warm-up guys the guy i've seen him do warm-up warm-ups you know he, he does stuff for um question of sport you know comedies and question of sport and um um sports personality i've seen him do that gets the crowd going and he's brilliant at it but do you like that atmosphere do you like the football style atmosphere well i marveled at it i loved the fact that the sport that i cover and love was able to stir emotions in the way that it did and there was an awful lot of real spontaneity about the singing that 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 went on it was a very kind of football crowd yeah uh, kind of environment there and i was worried on saturday night that it could spill over and, and it, it felt really hostile. The booze around the 18th. Obviously we saw the scenes with Rory after that as well on social media. And I just, I just thought I came here 
on Sunday morning and thought this could get really nasty. And it didn't yet. There were some idiotic calls out there at times and obviously it got very chaotic around the 18th. And again, around the presentation ceremony as well, it was an absolute bum fight, but it, it was... The spirit was good. It was joy. It was a joyous occasion. It's on that, that those, you know, and I'm nostalgic perhaps for behavior of the past. That's gone now. That's not going to change. I just wonder, Eddie, is our resident youngster, someone in their thirties still, what do you, do you like that? Would you like to play in that? Or do you think that's good for golf? The, this kind of atmosphere? I think it's undeniably good for golf. I think the DP World Tour and Ryder Cup Europe and the European Tour Group have turned this event, especially in Europe, into the most unbelievable sporting spectacle that the very spe- all kinds of spectrums of people want to be involved with this event whether they're as spectators whether they want to sponsor the event i think it's an unbelievable golf uh well not just golf it's a sporting event i tweeted earlier i think it's the best in in all of sport and um and i think that they've had to work to do that and i i get that there's always going to be drawbacks when you, you attempt for that but they've achieved it and i think that from a tour's perspective that's a brilliant thing that they've done and as a spectacle i think it's incredible and it's only going to keep going in that direction well, Ian, let's talk about that uh, because there were some some incident. Well, first of all, there was uh, Brooks Kepka saying that John Ram was childish, childish behavior and smacking a board because he was frustrated at something. That was a minor thing on the on the way. I loved that though because it showed there was needle. I like that. Yeah, I loved. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I I, I love that. I love that. I when I saw the video of Rory McIlroy, you know, and he was pointing at an out of shot Joe LaCava and wanting to continue thing, looking for afters. Well, we we assume it was Joe LaCarver. I don't, I don't think they've ever, ever got to the bottom of who he was actually shouting at. Bones Mackay was trying to was trying to calm him down. Shane Lowry um, saying, "Come on, stealing the way. Come on, everyone's had a drink. Uh, let's just move in." Even Rory's bodyguard got involved, didn't he? The sniper. The sniper. He gets everywhere. He gets everywhere. Exactly. I know. Well, this is where a little red dot suddenly appears in the forehead of Joe LaCarver. I saw him in my garden yesterday. <laughs> anyway, listen. <laughs> but so, so when you see Macaro, it's amazing what the Ryder Cup does to people. Now Shane Lowry is quite an animated, fun guy, anyway. Um, but when you see him, I don't. Know, it's as if they've been infused with something, uh, and Rory McIlroy just becomes elevated into this different beast. It's uh, uh, the the sort of passion and the animation of him. But when he was standing there on that green, and Joe Lacava was waving the hat because it was the Patrick Cantley style celebrations. That I actually enjoyed that as well. That response. Because all the fans are waving their their caps, so it's the capless Patrick Cantley, and then all the American players joined in when Cantley was storming down the last two holes last night. But the fact that Joe Lacava, and it certainly was Joe Lacava, on the green right next to Rory McIlroy, and that's what Rory McIlroy was getting upset about when he wanted him to move back. Well, it was certainly afterwards Joe Lacava because Jose Maria Olathabal last night I was speaking to him and he confirmed that it was Joe Lacava that he was still angry with, and. It's extraordinary to see that and to see it having continued and to see that, you know, you didn't get that from Reg Whitcomb back in the 30s, staring down, you know, staring down Don Jan, no, Don January was the 70s, what am I talking about? Staring down someone else's caddy. Oh, no, but you talked to Bernard Gallagher about, where was it, at Birkdale? I mean, he, he got in, almost got into a fist fight on the course with, who was it? Um, back in the day, you had Tommy Bolt and... Uh, and uh, Dave Hill, was it? Derek Brown and people like that. So, um, yeah. yeah, of course, yeah. Oh, Dave Hill, yeah, he was a spiky character. Yeah. Played guitar for Slade as well. And, but I going back to my point, I really liked that. It showed that there was needle between, between the teams. And my big fear about the Ryder Cup was because so many of the Europeans play on the PGA Tour, you could confirm this probably either way, Eddie, but basically Rory McIlroy's best mate here would have been Justin Thomas. Yeah, probably, quite probably. 
Yeah. And that, that I always felt that was a fear because what, what runs through the heart of the Ryder Cup is animosity, a chip on the European shoulders, the, that spirit of Seve. And again, that was something that, that Luke Donald really tapped into. Again, brilliant captaincy uh, from him to, to, to channel that inner Seve by Asteros. That is the heart and soul of the European effort. If they're all pals together, then it, it's not the spectacle that the fans want to see. Yeah, that fear actually evaporated for me today. I, I I almost regret saying what I said a week ago. I think the Ryder Cup sits above it all. And actually, I think Luke's captaincy and with everything that's happened with Henrik and all of these Glyph guys, it's another example to them. The Ryder Cup sits above them all. Mm. You know, they are interchangeable. They are just mm. fleeting, frankly. And the Ryder Cup will be here forever and it's growing no matter who's the captain, no matter who's playing, there's always going to be another Ian Poulter holding those crucial parts, getting us all pumped up. The issue with Patrick Cantley that I had, and I thought that it, and I, and I know Jamie Weir tweeted it, and I like Jamie and good friends with him and I agree with him on most things, certainly as it relates to the golfing landscape currently. But I do think the timing of it was irresponsible, even if it's true. And I have no doubt that it's true. I don't think the timing was wise, giving Patrick Cantley no opportunity to come back and defending himself. And frankly, he's given him a real life pylon there. Um, you know, the likes we see on social media. Patrick has had to be on the receiving end for five hours. And it's no wonder to me that Joe LaCava responded the way he did. That being said, I've seen a video of Joe LaCava and he hung around for far too long around Rory. And I think he overstepped the mark and there was a lack of professionalism on his part there as well. So this whole thing cascaded. And ironically, one tweet, no matter how true, I think energized a whole team of Americans to go out there and Patrick Cantley especially. And it gave them a momentum that they took into today. And actually, at one point, I thought they were going to well win the Ryder Cup. So, um, you know, Jamie Weir was the USA's best player. Is that what you're saying? Possibly. He was the number two behind uh, Max Homer. Inspirational. Um, yeah, listen, I love I love all that stuff between the players I, and even caddies getting in there and the, and the passion and the pointing. and the. I, I love all that. Um, it's difficult to have that and not have the passion overspilling from the fans, I suppose. That's so, you know, when I want the fans to be, or I'll, some of the fans, listen, it's always just some of the fans, when I want them to be better behaved, I can't ask for that and then ask for the players not to be getting so passionate for it as well. So I suppose the two feed off each other in a symbiotic relationship. So maybe, you, you know, you get you get both or, or, or none. Um, what do you think just quickly on that in general about the idea of some compensation financial for players playing in the, in the Ryder Cup? This has been going on for a long, long time. I remember the build up to Brookline, Mark O'Meara and a few others saying we should be getting paid for this. Well, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, presumably they weren't getting paid this week and look what it meant to Patrick Cantlay. You know, so you don't need the money. This is this is an event that is just completely transcends anything financial. This is about, this is this is sport at the highest level. This is adding in the team element, the tribal element, and just look what it does to every single individual on both teams. It's perfect as it is. It doesn't need any monetary incentives. And if guys want it, they just need to move on, in my opinion. I think it's vital um, that it remains in the way that it is. And there is some kind of financial recompense built in there anyway, certainly according to a tweet I saw from Brandel Chambly, who was making the point that actually proceeds from the Ryder Cup ultimately find their way into the players' pension pots. There are contributions made to charitable foundations on their behalf and so on and so forth. But the rest of the time for people following golf, all they see is massive prize funds, all this talk about millions and millions and millions of dollars at live events and at PGA Tour events and at the biggest DP World Tour events. 
And I think that the perception of golfers can be that they are greedy, money-grabbing athletes. And that's fine to an extent. And when you get to the majors, then the prize money doesn't really matter. But we all know they're going to get masses of money, not only for their victory, but for the proceeds sponsorship-wise, as well as the Claret Jug or the Masters Green Jacket or the US Open Trophy, the Wanamaker Trophy. But here, it's just pure sport, and they're just playing for a trophy, which is what the rest of the world ever does, whatever their sport is, if they're not a professional. And I just think it's a great thing for the game of golf to have. It's something that the sport can hang its hat on. And it's why we had massive figures for our commentary on the radio, on BBC Sounds and all of that this week. That's just on the radio the sky will have had great figures it's why it captures the imagination bbc tv highlights as well bbc tv highlights I, you know i'm sure andrew that you will have got masses <laughs> watching that and sarah i'm, no, know, I'm, I'm know, being completely yeah. honest you know, this is when this is when golf transcends and the reason it does is because it's, it offers up pure sport and that doesn't happen very often we all know how much footballers get paid and all of that and and People love it. Yeah, the fact that it's just for the game. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, let me let me be positive about it because I'm always I'm putting cold water on things. And then no, I I am utterly positive about this in that when you do not have the payment and just on exactly that point that you've made, um, yeah, is that there is something special about the idea of pure competition for a trophy, and it doesn't matter, and it shows the stark contrast of the you you cannot buy something like that you cannot throw millions upon millions upon millions into it and expect to buy that special atmosphere and that shows the contrast and this isn't live bashing it is just that you know they can throw millions into it and their competition means nothing there is no money involved here or very little money involved here and it means everything andrew i do have a question though yes and that is how many corporate gigs did you do this week here in Rome? Well, again, I do it this week for nothing because I know I'm doing it for the spirit <laughs> of it's the spirit of chatting and hosting. And uh, well, I was, I did. It, uh, I'll tell you what's really interesting about this week, Ian. Um, Ian, Ian, he said, using your first name, being serious for a moment, um, mm -hmm. is that when you see all the past players coming out and they're being trotted from one sponsor to another. And the reason I see them is that I'm quite often there as well. But anyway, listen, I... Um, in, in, in a charitable capacity. In a charitable capacity. Again, doing it because you can't buy that. They can't well, throw they money at me and feeding. buy that passion. It's it, fine. Um, yeah, no, yeah, well, you've, you've got me there, Ian. Yeah, well, that's what you, that's, that's the business. Actually, it's quite, it, it, it's funny in that our, our business is in, in talking. Um, but the broadcasting is only part of it. As you know, you get... Um, you get other work where you're involved in being hosting. And there certainly has been a lot of that. I was at the team hotel. I'll tell you what I did enjoy was the team. Oh my word, the team hotel. I mean, when the players talk about not being paid and, but you, you see how they want for nothing and the hotel and the set and not in the center of Rome, uh, pretty much the center of Rome. It's you're looking over St. Peter's Basilica. It's not far from the Stadio Olimpico and looking out to the, the Colosseums there and beyond to the hills. And oh my word, the, the setting they have. So I did enjoy that. And I was at a, another one last night where Monty was there. And as I said, Jose Maria Olafable. And uh, 
Well, I'll tell you who I'm. Uh, no, I'm not going to tell you who I met. So, um, well, no. oh, quickly on this, you're dead right. I mean, I, I I joked about this in the last podcast. Oh, I think it got edited out about me stealing some trousers and shirts when they're 400 quid a pop. But I saw the captain. Sorry, the caddies for the caddies wearing the the attire. I mean, I dread to think what the European Tour group, the Ryder Cup group, spend on this week alone. I bet it is well into the millions. Um, apparently, it didn't get edited out. I must have just you know, misheard it. But quickly, I want to say one more thing, Andrew. Going back to what you said five minutes ago about the money. Rory McIlroy in his post-round interview today when he was crying said to Tim Barter this is the only event I ever cry at all the money he's won in his career all the tournaments he's won and this is the only event he cries at and it says it all you know that, that it literally says it all Rory McIlroy I think epitomizes what this event means to the very best who frankly have ever played the game and care passionately about it he'll cry if he wins the Masters yeah he will cry mm. if he wins the Masters I would say also that uh, in a very different uh, as a very different cause for the crying when you saw uh Scheffler and I think Schofield as well after they'd been struggling in the opening day and there were tears that it does matter to some American players that result that nine and seven I think that is the one that highlights the American problem if you've got Scotty Scheffler and Brooks Kepka who went out in the singles today and looked like the monsters they are the titans they are of the game and they're playing together and they lose by the biggest margin in Ryder Cup history in any format Seven over par they were at the very best when they lost nine and seven. It's astonishing. So that that single result, that single match would show the problem with the, the USA. It's exactly right. 100% agree with that. Um, what was your, what would, let's, let's go th- through some highlights and lowlights of, of the week. Andrew, you, 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 we had some Monty moments, didn't you? I had some, Monty is, Monty's peak Monty during the Ryder Cup. Anyway, I bumped into him a few times, but uh, no, I, I, I enjoyed the whole thing. I, uh, I would love to, I would love to still be out there commentating on the course, but television and radio do things in a very different way. But this is my 11th Ryder Cup and, I think nine of them have been spent out there commentating on the course. And, you know, Ian, when you were out there, the, I would say, though, also for people commentating on the course, this has been a hot and, and hard week's work and the concentration required. Listen, it's a joy and a privilege to be out there. But my goodness, this course was hot and it was so, so hot this week. Uh, the hottest Ryder Cup. Ken Brown says 1983 at PGA National in Florida was hotter. But yeah, you know, that's the Ryder Cup you want to be out there. And Matt Wallace was with you. And I, when I you know, he was saying, and I wasn't sure if he'd really take to it. He was saying, you're right there. You're right there. And that will fire him up to, you know, perhaps be a Ryder Cup player in the future because that, that guy's got the talent to be there. Do you know what he said to us when he, he saw what goes into it all as part of our team? And I, I thought he was fantastic for us on BBC Sounds and Five Live was uh, he said, God, I never realized so much went into this. He said, I'm never turning anyone down for a broadcast interview ever again. Um, so who has how long, how long will that well I, no but he, he just he just suddenly had this really high regard for our industry I, what do you I'll think you, next how time he finishes that bogey bogey I'll give you 20 quid that he's turned <laughs> you down Ian <laughs> did you get turned down by Gareth Bale for an interview this weekend I did I got turned down by Gareth Bale you know it was right on the on the Friday morning before the first tee shot he was just standing there he wasn't doing anything he wasn't going anywhere but then I ventured back into that area where the celebs were and I I uh, asked Tom Grennan, or actually Callum, my uh, uh, our social media guy. I made, nearly made it sound like I got my own social media guy, a, a very talented social media guy. Went up and um, Tom Grennan agreed to come and chat. And he was fantastic. Really, really nice guy. Although he didn't quite get my my gag because obviously Fleetwood get and away. McElroy were going to play together. Mm. 
and I'm thinking, well, I'm talking to a pop star. So I, I just, and it was just ahead of them teeing off. And I said, oh, are you a big fan of Fleetwood Mac? And, and he said, oh yeah, yeah. I love Fleetwood Mac. My mum my likes them better. And he, he didn't quite get that joke. But um, but my other highlight was being was being assaulted. Was yeah, yeah. Do you know what? I, it was funny as well. I was walking down in the because we had to walk through the rough the whole time. That made it an even harder walk. Um, and walking through the rough is certainly on the th- first three or four holes. There were loads of crickets, and they were all just jumping around your feet as you were walking along. And they heard your jokes. <laughs> I know exactly. <laughs> they were all jumping around, going, "Where's Ian Carter?" They're just following my commentary. And <laughs> goes, oh, my mate Dave, he, he was uh, he was chirping for you last week in the chirping forecast. He was one of that cast of thousands. Oh, and, and the other the other uh, the other incident was that was late last night when when all, it was all kicking off with Cantlay. and then he he um he held the pot on seventeen, which then took it to the eighteenth. And I was scrambling up and uh, describing what was going on. And then Mark Chapman asked me another question just at the point where you're thinking, go to someone else because I've got to get underneath the ropes. And it was absolute bedlam. People shouting, screaming and all trying to get underneath the ropes and run to the other side of the 18th. And the 17th runs parallel with the 18th. So as I've been doing all along, you just duck underneath the ropes and you get in. But because so many people were doing that, the stewards were desperately trying to stop them. This woman in the yellow shirt as a, as a steward sees me, makes a dive for me. And honestly, she's a forearm straight into my head as I'm going underneath while I'm answering a question on the radio. My headphones flew off. It's, it's the closest I've ever come to swearing on it. Absolutely brain me. If it had gone to the video ref, it wouldn't have even been the odd orange bin thing. It would have been a straight red. It was direct contact to the head. And I had to keep talking and get underneath. But that's that's what you get when you're when you're at a Ryder Cup. And and it, it's really hard at times. It's utterly exhilarating to do. And I, you know, Andrew, I I, I wouldn't swap it for the world what I do at at the open. And especially the Ryder Cup on on occasions like this, you know, all joking aside, I've just had an absolute ball this week. Yeah. You can come and join us in the Porter Cabin down in the TV compound just sitting watching in the monitor. So. Well, I, t- I take the wages, but I wouldn't take, uh, but the working conditions are way, way better in radio. They are. There is no doubt about that. This is our big pod for the week. So um, we are going to, I mean, you must be, Eddie, you must be absolutely champing at the bit to get back playing golf. Now, uh, Dunhill Links this week. Now, Dunhill Links is a contrast to the Ryder Cup. It's a lovely event, the Dunhill Links, but you must be just ready to go. Yeah, and that was part of the reason I was, you know, kindly offered by BBC to go and join you guys in, in Rome, Ian, and I absolutely would have done it if it wasn't for the fact that I, you know, I've got a big four weeks coming up myself and I'm just not in the luxurious position where I can go to Scotland being as tired as I inevitably would be and probably hung over, actually. Um <clears throat> But I'm going up tomorrow. I played at Queenwood yesterday, actually, the, the host venue for our match. And you'll be pleased to hear I was uh, I had eight eight birdies and an eagle. So um, really, Ooh. it was. Uh, you don't want to play me there. That's all I'll say. Home advantage. Is Home a big advantage. Thing. Oh, we were getting heckled by the crowd down there at Queenwood, and uh, yeah, the ducks and the swans. Yeah, the ducks and the swans. I've got a potential other venue for a match, so they're all clamouring for it now. Somebody I met on the on the rooftop of the of the team hotel in Rome is the guy. He he, he oh, lovely man. He owns half of the golf courses in Greece, which again sounds utterly ridiculous. But do you know how many golf courses there are in the whole of Greece? I'm going to guess five. Okay, Eddie. 
Seven. Okay, so now it's actually less spectacular. I'm saying there are nine nine golf courses in Greece. So he doesn't actually own five. I lied. Uh, uh, half of them. He owns four of them. But they're building another one. Anyway, so one of the courses. Do you know? Do you know why there aren't many golf courses in Greece? You'd think it would be ideal terrain. Any idea? He told me why. Yeah, I can't jump in here because you explained it to me over. Oh, did you? Did I? I can't even remember that. Right. So, um, inheritance, land inheritance in Greece. It is if you have land that is passed down. I think it is just to the sons. Come on, Greece, get with the program. But it's passed down to so each child, each son would get a parcel of land. So as the generations go by, the pieces of land get smaller and smaller. So if you want to buy enough land to build a golf course, then you're you're going to have to buy it from hundreds of people. So that is one of the reasons. The other reason is that it's it is simply too dry, except for on the west coast where this this man has his golf courses. And so there's a there's a place, uh, Costa Navarino, and he said, "Come and play, and you can come and play and bring your friends." I said, "Well, I have no friends, uh, but I have colleagues on the Chipping Forecast podcast." And he said, "I haven't heard of that. I don't know what you're talking about." And he started to walk away. I said, "No, come back, come back, come back. Uh, we could have our match there." So we've got on the west coast of Greece, where it's where the Ionian Sea meets the Mediterranean, Costa Navarino. It looks absolutely stunning. And so we could do it there, or we could do it at Queen, we're going to do it at Queenwood, or we could do it in... I've just Googled it, Andrew, and it's um, very well reviewed, and the pictures look stunning. So um, I'm, I'm up for this. Did you find that explanation why there are no golf courses in Greece at all interesting, Eddie? Andrew's always interesting to me. Okay, I'm going to do it oh. to myself then. Here we are. That's the noise we'll be hearing when we walk into the tea in Greece at 7 a.m. Nicely. It's a beautiful Mediterranean sound and we could be playing our match, which again will happen. And some people suggesting that we are going to get Kepka Scheffler's 9 and 7 in the match, Ian, as we play against Eddie. uh, Yeah, well, that has to be our objective, that we have to perform better than the winners of the Players' Championship in the US PGA. Yeah. I think we can do that. We're not going to lose 97 to Eddie. Absolutely not. Well, for Kepka, I mean, that's more than a dog license. Um, my highlight for the week was actually the Friday evening with Hovland and Ram and Justin holding the putts on 18. Yeah. To me, that just topped off what was an unbelievable day of golf for Europe, ensuring that the US didn't win a single game, I think, on the Friday. Uh, I thought that was an amazing just whole day of golf as a European fan for me. And then obviously with what happened on Saturday with Cantley really amped it up and provided so much excitement for today. But that Friday was just a brilliant day. Europe won it today. USA lost it on Friday as much as anything else. That was uh, that Friday. The afternoon session was crucial. I know it was a clean sweep in the morning, but the afternoon session was, was crucial. Um, right, we're going to... We we have been rambling on a little bit. So, um, Eddie, do you know who you're playing with yet in the Dunhill Links? Or do, does that get, when does that come out? Three Chinese businessmen. Probably. I don't know. I did request for an invite for a friend, but I think it's been unsuccessful. So um... so that's what I was going to say, because the biggest names playing in the Dunhill Links can put in a request. to Do they put it direct to Johan Rupert and say, could I play with Andrew and Ian? I went forecast? kind of indirectly. I think I think if I'd have gone with one of you two, then they, I don't think if I'd have heard back from the assistant's assistant. But um, I um, went in somewhat indirectly, but I'm going to have to go direct next year. Clearly, it's it's not worked out. So I don't know who, who I'm going to be playing with. But um, forecast looks relatively fair. Pretty breezy. Bit of rain. Should be a good week. Because you only get one partner in that. It's not like the other pro-ams, isn't it? So like, if you did put a request in for, for one of us, Eddie, I mean... 
it could happen you know. it could happen yeah. um it's a, it's a great you know i love the the format because each day you are playing with somebody different you know a pro's partner so you do get to meet some very interesting people indeed last year i played with michael bloomberg so uh which i'll never forget because on the friday it was freezing and windy and rain and 81 82 years old and had no umbrella no waterproof and he went and practiced afterwards i've never seen anything like it it was the kind of <laughs> it was the kind of courage andrew at one point he said in the round see andrew would have walked in after three holes he'd have entered after three holes and that would have been that <laughs> I, I wouldn't i i genuinely i mean no one's going to invite me to play in that but that sounds like i i wouldn't want to play in the dunhill links at all so i'm looking he's not 81 or 82 how old is he? oh he is 81 yeah. When you said 81, 82, I thought that you were about to say what your scores were. I was, I was like, no. I had to kiss you. It was awkward because there's one of the richest men in the world, the most powerful men in the world, and I'm having to pick his ball up and tell him that he must not carry on from a pace of play perspective when it's blowing 30 miles an hour. And his caddy didn't, <laughs> his caddy didn't have the courage because he was working for a tip. So, you know, I had to, I, I had to be the one. So, um, yeah, and he invited me for dinner and I turned him down. So how many people can honestly say they've turned down Michael Bloomberg and, you know, Jennifer Lopez for dinner. It's incredible. He has a net worth of, I can't believe that. He's, he does. He's got a net worth of 96.3, and the point three is important, billion dollars. 96.3 billion dollars. So he was, you were playing with him last year. He was my partner. And he told me an interesting story, which we'll get on to, because it was about Liv and Greg Norman, but we'll leave it for another day. But uh, he was a lovely fella. Does he want to sponsor a golf podcast at all? I'm sure I could persuade him. I'm sure you couldn't. Right. Okay. So I'm looking forward to watching you playing in the Dunhill Links with whoever they put you with this year. Ian, are you, what are you doing? Playing Padel? Uh, I'm going to have a long lie down when I get home. Actually, I've got to write my book. Oh, yes. I've got should. to finish off my book. Um, and I'll tell you what, it's, this has given it a an exclamation point, hasn't it? The arc of the book finishes with, uh, with the Ryder Cup. So oh. there's a lot to digest in the coming week. Did you see the Lawrence Onigan tweet, RE Live, and the, the deal that may or may not, well, it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Again, we can leave it for a future pod, but I thought that was interesting. No, no. What, what's he saying? Well, it was a, check it out. Lawrence Donegan put a tweet. There was an article from a US, a US Today article, maybe, I think, but just saying okay. that the, the deal doesn't look like it's going to happen. So, wow. Ian, Ian looks like he's spent. Look, I'm, I'm looking at him. He looks like he's drifting off to the land yeah, of Nod. he does. Um, well, if you want to lift evening. home, we've got to finish this pod now. Right, know. okay. So, uh, well, I'm back to the Rugby World Cup. I'm not getting home yet to see my dog. So I'm driving up to Switzerland tomorrow and then through mm -hmm. Germany and then off to yep. France for Scotland against Ireland. Actually, I'm going to that match as a fan. So come on, Scotland. Okay, listen, well, the Ryder Cup is done. It's in the books, as Ian Carter once said, and I didn't understand what he was talking about. But we will... We will now fall into, I mean, first of all, an apology for not delivering enough chipping forecast content over the days of competition, and by enough, I mean any, but we do get very busy with our actual work and commentary to find any podding. It's it's all day commentary and BBC commitments, hosting commitments deep into the night at hotels. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But Why didn't we do one on Saturday night? Because I was I was mm. hosting an event with Jose Maria Olathabo and Colin McCormick and Jimmy Roberts, NBC guy. Uh, let me see, guy. I think anyway, if if by a miracle in two years' time this podcast is still going, we should miracle. actually commit to doing one, just like the No Lane Up Boys, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night for the Ryder Cup week. I think but, it adds. I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah, but that's the difference between us and No Laying Up. And just again, being serious, from well, that's one of many differences. They're very, very good, but that's their job. It's their focus. Everything for them is their pods. For us, we do have. So that's what Big Randy and Tron Carter and Cheslin and Spank Weekly and JP Thrust, whatever they're called, <laughs> those guys. We do love TCF as nobody's yet calling it, but we're doing it as an amateur 
thing on the side. And we look at this Corinthian spirit. We are an Edwardian football team. We're the Woolwich Arsenal. We work down Petra in a factory all Corinthian week. casuals. The Corinthian casuals. And then we do our pod, but we're doing it on the side. That might change. It might become a bigger thing. We enjoy the fact that you're listening to it. So I'm just going to give him a call. Look, I've got his number. And I'm going to see. So Eddie's that. showing us on, on this Zoom call. He's showing us he's got Michael Bloomberg's number. So have you got anybody in your contact team worth more than $96.3 billion? No, I haven't. Uh, no, I haven't. Um, God, ring and, him now, Andrew. Ring- we will be we will be raking it in in two years' time. Do not worry, sir. Anyway, listen. We we will be back with more regular, but slightly sort of. Uh, I'm not saying more mundane pods, but pods with a sort of silliness of the chipping forecast and the interesting golf news and chat. Hopefully, we'll be back with those. This has been a sort of Ryder Cup special where we've been picking over the bones of the Ryder Cup, and it's such a big event and it's serious. So we've been quite serious for a while, but. We'll fall, fall into that rhythm now, hopefully, of, uh, of regular podcasts and more chipping forecasts to come. Uh, but that's it from Marco Simone. Uh, it has done another Ryder Cup. Europe are the winners. And we look forward to Beth Page Black and all that will happen in New York in two years' time. But uh, from Ian and me at, uh, in Rome and from uh, Eddie drinking his Italian wine in Oxfordshire, it's bye-bye and we'll see you next week. Special guests get paid. And that completes this edition of The Chipping Forecast. Wishing you a safe and pleasant night. Folding Pocket.